this morning's sermon text. You can turn your Bibles, I do hope you have one, to Acts chapter 4. If you don't have one, you can use one of the chairback Bibles that should be in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 912. We pick up the narrative in Acts uh, the next day after where we left off at the beginning of chapter 4 last week. So what we're going to look at together today is verse 5 through 22 of chapter 4. So let me read that portion for us and then pray and we'll begin. So listen now as and God does speak to you through His perfect word. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they set them down in their midst, they inquired, By what power, by what name did you do this? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and perceived they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They recognized they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. The man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. God, we are grateful that you speak to us your words of life, that even your word is living and active. It is able, according to your Spirit's power, to pierce our hearts, and we pray even this day that you would do that, that you would prick our consciences, that you would pierce our hearts, that you would raise our gaze to Jesus Christ, that you would convict us of our sin, that we might know what it means to truly find life in his name. And we ask it for your glory and for our good. Amen. You may be seated. Someone once talked about the tendency that modern people have for what he coined as chronological snobbery. It was just an ignorance of the past that meant you always thought right and accurate thinking belonged to the novel current moment. And that can even be true of preaching. It's why it's always good for pastors and preachers to read a lot of old sermons 
and learn from a lot of old preachers lest they commit homiletical snobbery in all kinds of ways. And now one of the preachers that I often advise people to read and learn from is this man named Samuel Rutherford, who in the 17th century uh, was one of the best loved and uh, most powerful of English-speaking preachers. And he was a a preacher whose sermons would sound nothing like what you would hear from behind this pulpit week in and week out. Uh, Someone told me once, who was a Rutherford scholar, it was like shotgun blasts of truth in the sermon because he would just kind of go all over the place. He would scatter about in his uh, preaching. But if you know anything about Samuel Rutherford, you know that he still is something of a famous name in many of our circles because he had this unusual ability to communicate the glory and beauty of Christ with particular eloquence. And so in his shotgun blast-like sermons, invariably it seemed like he got to this point near the end where he would start to communicate with particular eloquence, something about the glory and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And so one day he was preaching at his church at Anwith in the first 30 to 40 minutes. He was all over the place in the sermon, as Rutherford was wont to be all over the place in a sermon. And inevitably he got to that point where he started to fix the congregation's attention on Jesus Christ. And one of his old elders who was seated in the back of the sanctuary at that time cried out and shouted, interrupting the sermon, Hold you there, right minister. You're all right there, is what he said. And what we come to in our text today is the third chapter in a row full of a sermon from Peter. It's another sermon that helps us understand the early church's existence was one of holding right there. Because it was there where they must be. It was there in the preaching of Jesus Christ that the gospel would go forth to the end of the earth as Christ had commissioned them. And so it's a text that one commentator says comes like a watershed in Luke's narrative. And and frankly, you're going to have to probably wait till next week to see that watershed uh, like reality. But nevertheless, you're going to get something of its basic truth today. Because what this text communicates to us is the most basic of truths regarding the good news of Jesus Christ. It's a text that you can simply summarize with four words. Jesus Christ alone saves. It's four words that can change everything about your life. It's a four-word phrase that can change everything about a church's life. Kids, Jesus Christ alone saves. Four words that are most important ones you could ever know and trust. Students, four words, Jesus Christ alone saves. The most important truth you can speak to anyone this week. Four words, aren't they, parents, that you so desperately pray for and labor for the next generation, your children, to know, to love, and to obey. Four words, Jesus Christ alone saves. That gives the sum and substance of any church's faithful mission. It's the center of our existence who Christ is, and what he has done. So what I want you to see from our text today are four simple truths about who Jesus is, frankly, what he brings to us in his person. The first of which is Jesus is our restoration. That's what we're going to see in the first few verses of our text. Because you'll notice what verse 5 tells us. It gives us the chronological timeline in Acts, saying it was on the next day that the Sanhedrin gathered together in Jerusalem. Now, if you weren't with us Last week, you need to know what happened the previous day in Acts chapter 3 to make sense of our text today. 
Uh, We were told last week in Acts 3 that Peter and John, two apostles, they came in to the temple at the hour of prayer. So three o'clock in the afternoon. They're coming in the east side of the temple and they're getting ready to enter into the temple through the gate called Beautiful. And it was there that as they were coming through the beautiful gate, they saw this man, 40 years old, our text says, who had been lame from birth. And every day, people would bring him to the beautiful gate to beg for money, to ask for alms. And as the apostles are walking through the gate, this man looks at the apostles. And if you remember from last week, uh, what Peter does is he looks at this man and says, Hey, look at me. And he says, I don't have any silver or gold to give to you. But what I do have, I do give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And immediately the text says his ankles were made strong. He not only began to walk around, he began to leap in the temple. Praise God in the temple. As you can imagine, no small amount of commotion ensued. It would have been well known to many of the temple goers because they would go every single day. See this man at the beautiful gate every single day. Hear this man begging for money every single day. And suddenly, he's jumping around in joy in the temple. And we, we saw last week that he was eventually clinging to Peter and John. The crowds are, are pressing in on Peter and John and Peter was astonished at their astonishment because it comes this platform, this wonder becomes a platform for another word about Jesus Christ. And Peter proceeds to preach a gospel sermon. He says, you killed Jesus Christ. God raised him from the dead. And it's by faith in his name that has made this man walking, leaping, and praising God. And if you know anything about Jesus' ministry and the apostles' ministry, it seems like opponents were always lurking in the corners, weren't they? always hiding in the secret places to listen in and find ways, new ways that they might be able to accuse and and bring down this cause of Jesus Christ. And so we saw at the end of chapter 3, you had these Sadducees that were listening in on Peter's resurrection sermon. And Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were greatly annoyed, we saw at the beginning of of chapter 4. They arrested Peter and John, but because it was late in the day, they couldn't call the Sanhedrin together to do anything about what they just heard, about what they just saw. So we're picking up the story on the next day. The Sanhedrin finally is gathered together. If you don't know anything about the Sanhedrin, it's 71 men. The ruling elite of Jerusalem at that time. The council of 70 plus the high priest. They would have been seated in a semicircle there in Jerusalem. And we know from verse 7 that Peter and John are made to stand in front of them in the middle of this semicircle. For those of you that... Maybe see a courtroom drama on a film or a television show that's kind of ramping up the tension there in the dialogue, the back and forth, the arguments that are made. I don't even think that it could compare to the kind of tension, the anxiety that must have filled this room where Peter and John were meeting. And verse 10 you, you know, tells us that this man is standing there uh, among them too. So you can picture the scene, 71 men seated in a semicircle. Peter and John... Surely eventually this man comes to stand next to him. And notice verse 7, what they ask. By what power or by what name did you do this? By what authority is what they're asking. What authority did you make this man stand up? Now, it's important to recognize what they don't say. Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection. They don't say, well, you're preaching a resurrection sermon. And saying it's by faith in this resurrected king that this man now walks. Well, we can disprove your resurrection. Let's just walk over to Jesus' tomb and roll away the stone and we'll show you that this man is actually still in there. Well, I don't say that because they can't say that. They're not questioning actually the resurrection, are they? They're just saying, well, whose name generated this 
miraculous healing. James Guthrie was another famous preacher of old. He was said to be a man who wouldn't stoop, quote unquote. That was his courage and boldness for Jesus Christ. So in 1661, he was summoned before a trial because of his faith in Christ, his preaching of Jesus Christ. And this was a trial that was probably going to result in his martyrdom, many people knew. And somewhere along the way in this trial, there was a break and an interested observer leaned into Guthrie's shoulder and said, you know, if you duck but a little, the wave won't roll over you. And Guthrie said, there is no ducking in the kingdom of Christ, my friend. There's no ducking for the apostle Peter in this moment. Uh, you need to know that this is the exact same Sanhedrin that just weeks before, what did they do with the Lord Jesus Christ? Condemned him to death. Peter thus is getting ready to open his mouth, probably expecting what he's getting ready to say is going to result in his martyrdom. But preach he does. Notice verse 8 through 10. Rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. It's a good model, isn't it, of, of preaching with conviction? Uh, we don't need preaching that's a conversation. We need preaching that's confrontation. So often what you see in the New Testament is, as we said last week, the use of second-person pronouns. You did this. You killed him. And that resurrected Savior, he has healed him, as what Peter declares. And again, if you weren't with us last week, you need to know how this lame man, now leaping for joy in the temple, he himself is this symbolic, this this typological expression and illustration of what it means to be saved, or he was a man that was outside of the temple. He thus had no access to God's presence, completely and utterly unable to do anything about entering into the temple. And then by faith in Jesus Christ, he now is what? Restored, made whole, forgiven, freed, able now to enter into the temple, showing us that Jesus is our restoration Now you'll notice in verse 11, he's also our foundation. Peter continues, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. Now all of those religious leaders listening to Peter's sermon at that moment, they would have understood the exact text in the Old Testament from which Peter is quoting, the one to which he is alluding. And I wonder if if you know which text that is, Psalm chapter 100 in 18, it's speaking about this cornerstone that God is using, this sure foundation on which God is going to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And the word itself for cornerstone, it could mean that cornerstone on which the foundation is shaped and based. It could be actually the capstone that holds the whole thing together. Uh, the point is that Jesus Christ is the foundation for all of God's people. That foundation that was rejected has now become the true source of life. For anyone and everyone. Uh, I wonder what kind of foundation you're building your life on today. Uh, You know, if if you don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, if you don't trust in him, your life still has a foundation of something that's guiding you, directing you, strengthening you. 
And perhaps you're in the room today and you do confess faith in Jesus Christ. You do trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, but you might realize in the Spirit's conviction that ordinary days tend to find yourself living on a foundation on something that's other than the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the only foundation, Peter says, but now we'll notice thirdly and centrally, Jesus is our salvation. Jesus is our salvation in this great verse of Acts 4, verse 12. You know, back when people used to listen to music exclusively or at least primarily on compact discs, you know, CDs, you you would get, wouldn't you, sometimes to the last track in an album and you would notice, perhaps as the minutes and seconds spun forth on your radio dial or stereo, whatever it was, that the disc was still spinning, but there was no music playing. And many of you perhaps can remember how it would summon into your mind uh, a truth that there was a bonus track on this album. You just had to get through like four or five minutes of silence on that last track to get to the bonus track that wasn't listed. Now, there was a friend of mine that loved an artist who had an album with a bonus track in after the last song was over, about four or five minutes later, we might be driving around the car waiting to get to the next one. And soon enough, just a simple guitar rhythm burst forth as the man began to sing what he called his one chord song. And he said there wasn't much he could do with the melody because he was confined to this single key of G. And then the refrain was nothing more. This is my one chord song. I can't go on too long, is what he said. And when you come to Acts 4, verse 12, you could even write in the margin of your Bible, God's one chord song. This is what the Bible's been building up towards. The good news of Jesus Christ is you can go on an eternally long time with the truth of verse 12. Notice what he says, there's no salvation in anyone else, for there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I want you to see a few things about this Truth in verse 12, I want you to see, first of all, the potency of Christ's name. You might have noticed, children, as I was reading through the passage earlier, how much, and it's already been true in chapter 2 and chapter 3 of Acts, that the apostles emphasize the name of Jesus Christ. The name itself is powerful. The name itself is able. Faith in the name has made this man strong. Faith in his name can save. Well, what is Jesus' name? But Yahweh saves Jesus' name communicating to us who he is. Jesus' name communicating why he came. It's the name above all names. But I want you to see also the exclusivity of Christ's name. He says there's salvation in no one else. There's not another God to whom you can look to for aid. There's not another Lord to whom you must obey. There's not another salvation to which you must cling. There is salvation found in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus alone. You want to notice the potency, the exclusivity, but if you look at the end of verse 12, also the necessity for Peter tells us, there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You do recognize, don't you, that it would be true... For Peter to have said, Jesus alone can save you. That's true. It's also true to say, for those that look to him in faith, Jesus alone will save you. That's true too. But what does he say? Jesus alone must save you. You see that confrontation again, don't you? By virtue of sin 
It's stain. It's penalty. You must be saved. Implicitly, he's telling this to the Sanhedrin, isn't he? These people that are rejecting Jesus Christ. They rejected the cornerstone. You must be saved by Jesus Christ. And certainly in a room of this size, some of you are in here today, and you must be saved by Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. He's our restoration. He's our foundation. He's our salvation. We'll see now in verse 13 to the end that He's our transformation. For notice what the Sanhedrin does by way of response in verse 13. They saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, and they were astonished. You, know, you could almost translate that language there of uneducated men as unlettered men. They didn't have the right credentials. They hadn't gone to the right rabbinic school. These are men from Galilee, which was the backwater in the area of Israel. I've heard one preacher say before that they're nothing more than the rednecks upon which the rest of Israel look down on. And yet it's these people that are what? Not just preaching with courage and boldness, but it's now a man 40 years old who never walked before, suddenly leaping in their very presence. And they're utterly astonished. Now how true it is that God loves to shame the wise of the world with the foolish, that he loves to make low the proud of the world with the humble, that he loves to raise up the weak of the world in the presence of the strong. But they don't know what to do with the apostles. Because whereas Peter and John, they display this great courage in the face of opposition, uh, the Sanhedrin, nothing more than man-pleasers, uh, they, they cower in the face of the crowds, for notice what we're told in verse 14, seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave, the council conferred with one another. So we get, as it were, this kind of sneak peek into the deliberation of the Sanhedrin, this uh, secret glance into the verdict that they were going to bring upon the apostles. And if you just kind of scan your eyes through the next few verses, you'll see, well, we don't really know what to do with these guys. The crowds love them. We can't deny that a miracle has taken place and there's no basis on which we can punish them. There's no reason why we can mete out any particular justice. So what they say in verse 18, they called these men back together, Peter and John, and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. The ruler of England for most of the 12th century was a man named King Canute. He was a devout believer in Jesus Christ. And one day, sensing that people in his court, his advisors, were expecting too much authority to come from him, as though he had this kind of universal authority, he commanded his servants to take his throne and put it out on the bank of the Thames River. And then when the waters were near to it, he went and sat down in his throne with his court surrounding him. And as the story goes, he began to command the water, saying this, you are part of my dominion, and the ground that I am seated upon is mine. Nor has anyone disobeyed my orders with impunity, therefore I order you not to rise upon my land, nor to wet the clothes or the body of your king. My kids, do you think that the water stopped rising? No, it just kept rising. It made his clothes wet. It ruined perhaps even his throne. And that was his point. He couldn't do anything to stop the water. But there was one. Jesus Christ who could stop waves. 
who can quiet winds. Do you think the Sanhedrin saying you must stop preaching the gospel would do anything to stop the advance of the gospel? Of course not. And Peter even says as much. Notice what he says in verse 19 and 20. Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Students, you might have had an occasion in the last semester or two where a friend, perhaps even someone at your school or a teammate or a neighbor, wanted you to do something that you know God wouldn't want you to do. I wonder if you were like Peter or John and able to stand up and say, that might be what you say, but we do what God says. There's a point at which even government obedience, which is commanded in Scripture, reaches a point to which we still pass as Christians. For when the government says you cannot do things that God says we must do, well, you can judge for yourself whether or not we should listen to you, but what we will do is continue to preach what we will do is continue to bear witness, Peter says, to what we have both seen and heard. So, this first scene of opposition in the book of Acts, the Sanhedrin is thwarted, and you'll notice in the last couple of verses of our passage, 21 and 22, it's as though they just kind of slink away for a moment, perhaps having lost this battle. And if you know the story well, soon enough they're going to come back, and again, trying to silence this advance of a gospel a gospel that's all about the simple truth that Jesus Christ alone saves. I was reading earlier this week a book by an old Archbishop of Canterbury named William Taylor, if I recall his name correctly. And he was writing long enough ago to when there were still some evangelicals in the Church of England. And he, he was writing this book trying to summon the leaders and the preachers at that time to return to the true preaching of Jesus Christ and recentering their ministry on the realities of, of his salvation. And somewhere along the way, he began to quote from a Buddhist monk talking about their Eastern perspective on Western Christianity. And this Buddhist monk had evidently said to the Eastern religious, it looks as if Christianity has reached the stage in adolescence, when a child is sh slightly ashamed of his father and embarrassed to speak about him. And the Archbishop was saying this is true of our church today in, in England. And we, of course, want to continue in our study of Acts saying that must never be the truth about this church in McKinney, Texas. Being ashamed of who Jesus Christ is, embarrassed of what he has commanded of us. And if that's going to continue, we trust and pray and hope in God's grace and kindness towards us. This great good news that Jesus Christ alone saves would mean for all of us in the room today at least three simple things that I want to mention as we do begin to close this morning. Jesus Christ alone saves. So, you must believe in him. That's the immediate implication of verse 12, isn't it? And again, you are in the room today, hearing the gospel being preached, and some of you have believed this truth for a few months, others of you for many years, perhaps others of you for decades, but you might be in the room and have never actually truly believed that Jesus Christ alone can save. Because, of course, it's one thing for Christians to know that Jesus Christ alone can bring comfort to the hurting, assurance to the doubting, strength to the weak, 
But salvation begins when you understand that Jesus Christ alone can forgive sinners of the punishment and penalty that their sin deserves. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which anyone can be saved. Anyone must be saved. That's the text not telling us only that we must believe in Jesus Christ. It also tells us we must be bold for Jesus Christ. Uh, the Sanhedrin's utterly astonished that these uneducated common men are doing these amazing things in their courageous preaching ministry. But careful students of Scripture are not surprised. Because look back at verse 8. What are we told? The source of Peter's boldness. Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Which Jesus Christ had promised to them in the upper room so many weeks before. This courage, this boldness, this bravery in preaching Christ and sharing Christ is nothing more than the Spirit carrying their words on the wings of His activity and energy and clarity. Some of you might have to share the good news of Jesus Christ with someone in your life this week. Perhaps you're even planning on it this day. Maybe you're a wee bit scared of speaking that truth. Well, the same Spirit that filled these apostles with boldness, must fill you with boldness. The same Spirit, any time that you come on the Lord's Day morning or evening, must inhabit this pulpit if you're to hear anything useful. If you're to hear anything saving, you must be bold for Jesus. You must believe in Jesus. No doubt, finally, Jesus Christ alone saves. It calls us to be with Jesus. Because the Sanhedrin hits on the reason why, also, Peter and John were full of astonishing power. You see the end of verse 13. They were uneducated. They recognized that Peter and John were common men. And they saw that they had been with Jesus. Isn't there something beautiful? Isn't there something glorious about God's people living together in such a way? God's church ministering Christ in such a way when the only explanation for its strength and power, they've been with Jesus. Could that be said of your week this week, your month of April past? He or she has, has been with Jesus. It's obvious to see bold belief from being with Jesus. That's the ordinary overflow of a heart and soul that knows Jesus Christ alone saves. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would help us in the place of our weakness and sinfulness to come to Christ this day, knowing that he is gentle and lowly in heart, knowing that he is powerful and mighty in spirit, that his life, death, and resurrection means our very own eternal life granted and promised unto us. Help us then to come to Christ that we might find life in his name. He who is full of glory, majesty, and beauty, splendor beyond all imagination, in whose very name we pray these things. Amen. Well, let's stand together as we do want to respond to the good news of our Savior. Now, singing the hymn of response printed there in your bulletins, All Glory Be to Christ.